We're talking today to Fernando Reimers. He's the Ford Foundation Professor of the Practice in International Education. He's also director of the Global Education Initiative and the, educa- and the International Education Policy Program at Harvard University. Welcome, Fernando. Thank you for having me, Joni. It's good to talk with you, and I'm delighted to know that Dr. Class has these series of co- podcasts. Well, you're the first one who's going to be talking about um, education, which is really in some dire straits right now. I just read a report by the World Bank that says that about 120 million of the region's school-aged children have already left or were at risk of losing an entire academic year. Given that panorama, what do you think is the biggest challenge going forth in Latin America and the Caribbean? So that, that's right. And the loss is going to be more profound than that. I have spent the last year doing research on the educational impact of COVID. And um, the picture is still evolving. But I think that there are three great potential consequences of COVID for education. One, as you said, that students not only will not have learned as much as they would have otherwise, but that in fact, they may regress to levels before the levels they were in. And that can be profound. I can tell you that for Sao Paulo, where there are some figures available, uh, that um, descent is equivalent to two grade levels for language and three grade levels for mathematics. So very serious. The second consequence, which is very, very important also, is that some students are never going to come back to school. It's not just that the students who come back are going to be in a worse place than they were before the pandemic. It is that because students have disengaged and because the pandemic has impacted families in numerous ways, not just through education. This is a very regressive pandemic on its impact. Some kids have not been able to engage with school at all and life has gotten complicated and they will be unable to come. So you put those two things together and it's easy to anticipate that for Latin America, this pandemic could very easily wipe out anywhere between 10 to 20 years of progress. It's like it would erase the last 10 or 20 years in terms of the progress the region had made. And the third consequence is that, you know, this pandemic didn't hit education systems in a vacuum or education systems that were doing great. There were some pre-existing problems that were pretty serious in terms of children not learning enough of the curriculum, in terms of not learning things that were uh, relevant to their lives. And not only has the pandemic made it harder for governments to address that during the pandemic, but it is going to compound those challenges in the future because one of the impacts this pandemic is likely going to have is a fiscal impact in the capacity of both governments and individuals to support education. So you may remember the debt crisis of the 1980s, which basically wiped out a decade of human progress. That's why it was called the lost decade. I see this pandemic could very easily produce a lost decade simply through its fiscal impact. And then of course, that austerity is also affecting individuals because this pandemic the world over has hit the poorest members of society the most, and Latin America remains one of the regions in the world with very high levels of inequality. So it is to be expected that in that region, in that context, um, 
this is just worsening uh, pre-existing pre-existing challenges. Could you talk a bit about the digital divide and how specifically that has affected education during COVID? Well, the digital divide in Latin America has three components to it. One is that access to infrastructure, at least in terms of internet-based technologies that would allow you to have web 2.0 or or more uh, interactivity. Access to connectivity and to devices is inequitably distributed. We we knew that. The internet is not like clean water or electricity, sadly, whereas it should be in the 21st century because you cannot participate economically or politically in the 21st century if you don't have access to a device and connectivity. And a lot of people don't have access. So that has been the first barrier. The second barrier has been a barrier in the skills on the part of students as well as teachers to use the technology that they have access to more proficiently. And not just the technology, but the capacities that would help people grow. For example, the capacity for self-directed learning, the capacity to set personal goals and to pick up some books and to study on your own. Education systems haven't done a great job uh, educating all everywhere, by the way, this is not just Latin America. This is also true in the United States. It's also true in Spain. It's true in many different regions. They haven't done a great job developing that capacity for autonomous learning, for independent learning. So in this context where you cannot be in your classroom every day with the teacher guiding you, a lot of people are lost, but they're lost not just because they don't have the devices, but because they don't have that autonomy to learn independently. Having said that, having said that, there has been a lot of effort and a lot of ingenuity on the part of governments and society, uh, civil society organizations in Latin America to do the best that was possible given the circumstances, given the reality that this was an unforeseen event that hit the region. And one of the things that I have been studying are innovations that have happened and frankly, uh, there is there are a lot of very exciting things in Latin America that um, the United States, frankly, could learn from. So anyway, this has been a very, very a real calamity. There is no other way to put it, a global calamity. Could you give me a couple of examples of this type of innovation? Oh, absolutely. And let me first tell you how I came to become interested in that, because it sounds morbid that one would try to look for goodness in the middle of such tragedy. But let me let me explain how I came to uh, be interested in that. So before the pandemic hit uh, around February, I think, um, I was planning a trip to Mexico, and I was in conversation with one of my colleagues here, Rifat Atun, Atif Rifat, a professor at the School of Public Health with whom I collaborate, who's an epidemiologist. And he said, you know what? You're saying you're going to go to Mexico for spring break. You should cancel that trip. I said, why? Well, have you been reading about this virus? I said, yeah, but it's mostly in Asia. He said, well, this will become a pandemic. It's not weather, it's when. And airports and airplanes are not good places to be during the pandemic. So I began to look at the facts and I realized that Rifat was right. And my next thought was, oh my goodness, how are we gonna teach? We have never been in a situation where we cannot meet to teach. 
And so I reached out to colleagues uh, at UNESCO, at the World Bank, at um, at USAID, at the OECD. And I said, listen, is there something we can do? Because I just realized we're going to see the worst education crisis in a century since the pandemic of 1918. And one person who responded right away was the director of education uh, of the OECD, Andrea Schleicher, who within... I had sent my email within 15 minutes. He said, let's talk on the phone. And he said, "What? Well, I agree with you. What do you think we should do? I said, Andreas, I have no idea, but I think this is going to be a nightmare. And I said, well, why don't we do a survey, a global survey? And we administer that to ministers and decision makers and even civil society organizations. And we ask them, what plans have you made to continue to teach them this pandemic? And what are the challenges that you anticipate? So we designed that survey, and when the WHO announced the pandemic, the next day we released our survey. And the week after that, we had a first report. And when you read it now, you realize this was crónica de una muerte anunciada. I mean, it's all there. It basically said what was going to happen. People knew it a year ago. They said this is going to increase every possible inequality that we know of. We have no plans. We don't know how to teach. This is going to create mental health challenges and so on. So anyway, we published that report. And then we began to host virtual meetings like this. We did a lot of them in Latin America. And people came in large numbers. I mean, we had I had to get a special Zoom account to have 5,000 people in these meetings. And I know why they were coming. Because we were all driving in the night. We, I mean, I don't know if you remember what it felt like last March, right? Or April. Like, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't know how long it was going to take. We're just hunkering down. Uh, Harvard had just announced we're going to finish the semester remotely. We don't know what we're doing next year. I mean, this was this was something we hadn't seen, like, like we're in the Titanic, and we all realized the ship is sinking, and we don't know what we're going to do. And so the more I participated in those conversations, the more I realized This is not very, I mean, there were good things happening. I remember, for example, a meeting we held in Chile. There is a, we had the vice minister of education and we had a rural teacher. And the rural teacher says, because these meetings were giving people an opportunity to talk to each other. She says to the vice minister, but do you realize that we are the country with the highest levels of violence against women and that this is increasing and you are pushing this emphasis on tests and on the assessments, and it's making a bad situation worse because it is increasing stress in the homes and it's increasing violence in the homes. So, I mean, that that was the world, April of 2020. So in that context, I regrouped with Andreas and I said, Andreas, I don't know whether we're doing any good or bad because we're amplifying this very, very grim picture. I said, why don't we start looking at people who are trying to do something good, no matter how little it is, and let's just put a spotlight on that because people need hope. We have to show that it's possible to do something. So through our networks, I I first reached out to my graduates and my students, and I put together a team. And through our networks, we said, let's look at who's doing something. And we began to write short cases, 10 cases. And then people began to talk about them. 
And that there was were a those ten cases. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give you examples. I know it's a long answer to your question. Give me examples, but I wanted to give you the context. And then we added up other people. We've done a hundred, and I'll be happy to send you a link if you want to post this, in case people want to see it. But I'm going to give you some examples of innovations. First example, an organization in Chile that works with street children. And these organizations, these are kids who have had very bad experiences with adults. They don't, they have issues with trust with adults. And part of this program, it's a life skills program. It's a program of the Society of Jesus there, the Jesuits. And uh, they said, we cannot disappear from the life of our kids. These kids have very difficult lives. We are, the adults in our program are one of the few people they trust. So they created a program with WhatsApp. And through WhatsApp, they develop a routine to check in with these kids every day. And they had psychologists and social workers whose job it was to see who was responding. And if someone wasn't responding, they put a search party to kind of figure out what's happened to that person. So what they tried to do is very simple, but very important. They tried to remind these young people every day, we're here for you. We care for you. How are you doing? That's all. And then on top of that, they were teaching. So they figured out a way to distribute self-instructional manuals through WhatsApp. Imagine it, through WhatsApp, which apparently you can use even if you don't have an internet connection. You get to some hotspot and you can access that. So that's an example. I thought, wow, what an amazing... So we wrote a case study. I wrote a case study with uh, with a colleague who's involved with that program. Another example of, an, of civil society doing great things. You know the organization Enseña Chile. It's part of a big global network like Teach for America. So the day the government of Chile announces we're going to shut down the schools, there are two, they're called enseñas, two of these young people who say, what's going to happen to our kids? They don't say, what's the government going to do? They say, what's going to happen to our kids? And what are we going to do about it? And because these kids, you know, there are some 60-some networks like that around the world, and they're all in communication. They all get newsletters where they learn what others are doing. They had just seen in the newsletter that Teach for Nigeria had begun to use recordings like podcasts distributed through WhatsApp to teach math and English. And they said, well, if our colleagues in Nigeria can do that, we can do that. So they recorded these lessons, math and language lessons. And apparently they were funny. They were very funny. You should interview those people because within a week, those lessons had gone viral. And as you know, Enseña for Chile, like Teach for America, works in marginalized communities. And so within a week, apparently everyone in that place is listening to these podcasts on math and Spanish. So the mayor took an interest and he said, "What? what's going on? So he listened to that and he was participating in a convening with other mayors of cities with similar challenges. And he just shared this practice. And within a couple of weeks, 200 mayors had built partnerships with local radio stations and they were broadcasting this thing. And Enseña for Chile now said, okay, let's deploy not just two people, but 50 people. So, I mean, it's a beautiful story, right? It's a beautiful story of how good ideas can come from anywhere, that leadership can come from the places you least expect it. You know, these people are recent college graduates. A lot of people would say, what do they know? Well, in this case, they show that they knew more than the ministry. They knew how to find a solution to try to do something with the situation. And it's also an example of the power 
of civil society working with government. I mean, those mayors in those cities had the humility to say, well, we don't have a solution, but these young people do, so let's broadcast that. So these are two examples of innovation from civil society. I'll give you two examples of innovation from the government. When the government of Colombia said we're shutting down the schools, the secretary of Bogota, remarkable woman, she's a university professor, um, maybe an accidental secretary of education, she convened a virtual meeting, like a town hall, she invited all the principals, I don't know whether teachers, and she set the following tone. Her name is Edna Bonilla. She said, we have a real problem. We're not going to be able to meet in person, but I think we have an obligation to make sure that people keep learning. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I'm certain that together we're going to figure something out. And so they began to generate innovation, the first thing they did is the ministry had a website which had been developed in partnership with a university called EAFIT. It's a university that works with fairly low-income uh, individuals. And it was a website to teach technology. So they basically went to this thing that existed and said, well, let's repurpose it. Let's, let's get the curriculum. Let's develop digital resources, put them there. Of course, what did they find out within a week? what we were just discussing at the outset of this conversation. Most kids didn't have access to that. So then they said, okay, let's use radio. Let's use TV. Let's do learning packets. But it's a great example here, again, of how humble leadership, invitational leadership, democratic leadership, that basically says, I don't know how to do that, but I need you, came up with an innovation Something similar happened in Sao Paulo. The Secretary of Education did something along similar lines, perhaps because he had been previously Secretary of Amazonas, which is a place that not a lot of people care much about in Brazil. And so he had developed that humility of, of um, I guess, a, a different way to put it is he didn't have the arrogance, right, of some of, of some other public figures, um, including in this country, who pretended that they knew how to solve the problem. And in fact, by taking that stance, made the problem worse because they turned off the very people who could have helped. So at the end of a year, we have documented a hundred cases like that of innovations. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't solve the bigger problem. I mean, I'm so glad that they happen. I hope we can, uh, we can learn from the innovation dividend of the pandemic. I hope we can learn some of those lessons, but they were, in, I cannot imagine what it would have been if there hadn't been those efforts. But in spite of those efforts, it's still a pretty dramatic situation. When you look at those innovations, like when you're talking about the example of WhatsApp, um, I think of a lot of Latin America as being very rural and marginalized where you have to travel for three hours to get to a school. So do you foresee that some of these innovations might be put into practice in entre comillas normal times um, to help rural communities in particular? Yes, I do. Th I, I do think so. I do think that just to focus on the positive, that there are some dividends of this pandemic, both in terms of the things that we learn and in terms of the ideas that are going to stay with us 
in normal times. And so the ideas aren't just about the use of technology, which I do think, I think we have realized how important technology is to help us function. And we have become aware of the tremendous divide in access to connectivity devices and skills. So I think that's gonna be a priority. Addressing that divide is gonna be a priority like it hadn't been before. And that's a good thing. But in addition to that, I also think we have learned, uh, for example, that no one learns very much when they're in fear, when you're stressed out. When you know that you or someone close to you could lose their life to this plague. And in some ways, it's not rocket science, right? Why do we need a pandemic to learn that? But the reality is, if you look at education systems in Latin America, they were not really emphasizing what we would call whole child education or attention to the social emotional development very much, most of them. And I think that has changed. We have understood that to educate a person, you have to educate the whole person, that you have to do what that group was doing with the street children, connect and tell them, I see you, I care about you. How is it going before they can be ready to learn math or science or literacy? And I think that idea is gonna stay with us. That's an example. I think that in terms of process, I hope, that we have realized that the places where it was possible to do some patchwork and sustain education to some extent, we're able to do that because of collaborations, because of collaborations among teachers within the school, because of collaborations among teachers across schools, because of collaboration between civil society and schools. We have just realized the power of non-state actors to sustain education. And I'm hoping that that powerful idea will stay with us after the pandemic, that we will say, but how come we didn't see this before? So I think that there are some dividends. It's a painful way to learn them, but there, but there is some goodness that will come out of this nightmare, yes. Fernando, you talk about non-state actors. I'm wondering what you, what do you see the role of industry and business in trying to get education going? Or so they have been, they have been very helpful. For example, in the case of Sao Paulo, uh, the, what the Secretary of Education did when the government said we're going to shut down the schools is he actually invited ten very influential business leaders in Sao Paulo. And he did the same thing that Edna Bonilla did in Bogota, basically asking for help, inviting collaboration, but with heads of industry. And great things, I wrote a case study about that, great things came out of that. I mean, people basically put money and resources on the table to help them build an amazing multimedia platform and deliver essentially cash to the kids, the food program that they used to deliver through the schools, they now deliver cash to the families. So and, and so, so, I think that business leaders throughout this emergency have collaborated with the public sector. They have realized how important it is. And I see that continuing. There is already some of that in Latin America beginning, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago in this region there have been efforts to organize coalitions of the business community. In Guatemala, they are called Empresarios por la Educación. In Colombia, they are called Empresarios por la Educación. In Brazil, there is something called Todos pela Educação. And there is a chapter of this sort in just about every country in Latin America. And what they try to do is they try to mobilize 
the private sector to do various things, right? To do various things. One is to advocate for education. Uh, other one is to support in various ways uh, education. So, so that was happening. I am hoping that this pandemic is going to cause that to happen even more. And I don't know whether it will, because there is a financial impact of the pandemic on everybody. And uh, and so I'm hoping that it will be possible for Latin America to really interpret this crisis in, in the way in which the Secretary of the UN has framed it, which is this is a lot more than a health crisis, it's an economic, human rights, security crisis that is going to require a whole of society approach, tremendous solidarity to come out of that. And of course, in that picture, there is a role for everybody, for civil society and so on. And I hope it will happen. One, one of the things I have done in, in trying to make sense out of this difficult time is looked at the history of past pandemics. And of course, that history is both horrifying sometimes and inspiring other times. It's horrifying because if you look 100 years ago, the Spanish flu, a misnomer because this did not originate in Spain, but the plague of 1918 helped bring Hitler to power. And this is well documented in a very good study of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that examined how the financial impact of the pandemic in Germany, in municipal spending, reduced services, marginalized a lot of people, and those people became prey of these extremist intolerant groups, such as the ones that are rising in the United States these days, essentially white supremacists, who began to organize them and tell them, well, you're hurting. You know why you're hurting? Because the world hates Europe, hates Germany. You know why you're hurting? Because all these bankers are really screwing you up and so on. And in 1918, a fellow named Adolf Hitler was a clown who was laughed by the politicians. They thought, who is he? Well, in 15 years, he was elected chancellor of Germany. So that's a lesson that we should internalize. And I think if there is a region that is at risk, there's a country, is the United States of America. We should actually look at the example of Germany because we see plenty of things in this country that should really concern us, like the creation of a, an Anglo-Saxon caucus in the US Congress, for example. Like the, I mean, the, the repeated calls from our intelligence agencies that say the most serious security crisis risk to the United States is in the form of white supremacist terrorists organizing. But the U.S. is not the only country. These groups talk to each other. I am sure that there are similar risks to democracy in the nations of Latin America. But in looking at history, there are also inspiring examples. So you look at the plague in Italy, 1345, I think it was. It was called the Black Death. So the Black Death was terrible, right? Arrives in Italy, within two years, wipes out a third of the population of Italy. What a tragedy. But... A couple of decades after that, uh, what is it, Cosimo de Medici, right, is born. And he becomes, becomes a very wealthy uh, merchant in the city of Florence who does something completely counterintuitive in an Italy that is economically and, and, and otherwise devastated by this plague. It was a plague on top of the Middle Ages. And this guy begins becomes a patron for the arts. 
and uh, his family, his son and his grandson, Lorenzo de' Medici, they become patrons for artists. And that's why you see people like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Machiavello all descend into this tiny city. And what does that strange move produce? The Renaissance. The Renaissance. So in a way, in a way, the plague in Italy also gave rise to this flourishing of the arts and of the sciences and to these ideas of humanism that eventually brought us the Renaissance. So, you know, between the breakdown of democracy in Germany and the Renaissance, I certainly much prefer the Renaissance. And I'm hoping that in Latin America, there will be leaders who will do what Cosimo de' Medici and Lorenzo de' Medici did in understanding that no one is going to do this work for us that this could be this could be terrible probably a lot worse than we can imagine if 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 the rise of fascism is, is not enough to help us understand how serious it is this could be really serious but the choice between one scenario of another comes down to what each one of us chooses to do in this moment and i'm i'm hoping that the leadership of latin america will understand this so when you're looking at the leadership in latin america what countries would you give good report cards to in terms of education during the pandemic? It's a hard question to answer because I know that everybody tried so hard. So you don't necessarily give a report card because of how successful the strategies are because countries are different places and they have different levels of resources um, but I think you 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 value the effort uh, and what people did, knowing that there were different, very difficult circumstances. Ecuador, um, under the leadership of uh, Montserrat Kramer, I think showed great capacity to bring in a very difficult context, very contested context, great capacity to prioritize education, to think about equity gaps, to think about connectivity. I think they got laptops for a lot of very low-income people. In They thought about internet connections in rural areas. So certainly a lot of very commendable efforts uh, in that country. Um, as I mentioned, Bogota, you know, it's not just the country. You have to look underneath the country. I think Bogota, in my view, amazing what they did. Uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil. I wouldn't say that the country of Brazil is exemplary because sadly, I think the leadership of Brazil, like the leadership of the U.S. under Donald Trump, was largely missing in action during this pandemic. And, and lousy leadership made this pandemic a lot worse. And for a while, they didn't even have a minister of education. I mean, they were in denial in Brazil about a pandemic, and they didn't even have a minister of education. But in that context, in that context, the states... Um, emerge. And they said, okay, there is no one but us. And so there were good things happening in the states and, and at the municipal level. And, and I think the state of Sao Paulo is a very good example. Something similar happened in Mexico. You know, it's kind of a tragedy because Mexico has the longest history of educational television in Latin America and a pretty remarkable educational television. And they did something very sensible, which was to realize we can't use internet Let's use TV. And so they use all the programming that they had, but not sure it was on in the best way. Uh, I've been looking at studies conducted by my own students and others, looking at implementation of that. And there were real 
challenges, real challenges in terms of the effectiveness of what was done in Mexico. I think that when we look at measures, it's it's not going to be good. Uh, but in that context, the secretaries of education at the state level actually rose to to say, okay, and, and civil society, there is no one but us. So I'm not giving you an answer that says, here's a country that has done very well. A, because I don't think it would be fair. Everybody has tried. Um, but I do think what we have seen is that there has been distributed leadership at the national, at the state, at the municipal level, and at all those levels. You can find people who did good things, people that we can learn from, and that the leadership hasn't just come from government, but there has also been civil society. Universities is a great example. I just finished a book, which will be published at the end of the summer, looking at how 20 universities around the world, including about eight in Latin America, essentially took responsibility to partner with public education systems to be of service to them during the pandemic. And so in that context, I, that I, question I can answer with facts, the University of Guadalajara is amazing what they did. One of the largest public universities in Mexico, which actually has a number of high schools that are part of their system. But these two worlds were very much worlds apart, the high schools and the university. In this pandemic, they came together. The university began to integrate a range of activities that they had of outreach and had a real strategy. And I I think that they were transformed by this pandemic in a good way, in ways that, frankly, our own University Harvard could probably learn from, in ways that universities like MIT could learn from, uh, you know, in a sense that here you see a university that says, you know what, we have a public responsibility. Our responsibility isn't just to figure out how are we going to teach our students, how are we going to make sure that our faculty are okay, our staff are okay. We have an obligation to society. Our responsibility is to figure out how do we help the people who are not in university. And one of the things the University of Guadalajara has done, just to give you an idea, is to host a series of public conversations like this podcast to provide guidance to the public. It's like the big outreach mission of the university. Um, same is true for the Tech of Monterrey. They did some very good things also in Mexico. The Universidad de Puebla as well. Eafit in Colombia. So I think that this crisis has been a very good moment to make visible leadership coming from many different places, whether it is a foundation of the Jesuits working with street children, whether it is two teachers of a program like Teach for Chile, whether it is a secretary of education of Bogota or Sao Paulo or the country, whether it is an association of business leaders or whether it is a university. And I think that, I think that everybody wins from understanding that what makes a society work is everybody coming together and asking, what can I do? Uh, for the common good, for the public good. One last question. Um, we tend to think in the United States because so many people are being vaccinated, oh, the pandemic is almost over. And in Latin America, there are many people who haven't even seen a vaccine. And I'm not talking about poor people. I'm talking even about those who would normally have access to the privileges of society. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of talk about, should we open the schools? Should we keep the schools closed? What should we do? 
Um, what does your research show how, and how do you balance education and health related priorities? Yeah, so I have been looking at the evidence on what, op- what does school opening do in terms of transmission. I used to think eight months ago, because based on the evidence from previous pandemics, that schools were not a dangerous place and that we should reopen right away and as soon as possible in order to mitigate learning loss, because I knew that all the other arrangements that were in place were not very effective, right? All this distance learning and so on. But as I look at current evidence from openings of schools in Italy, in France, in the UK, it's really mixed. And I couldn't say honestly that schools aren't going to be a health hazard. I think it depends. It depends on the living conditions, on how densely populated the place is, on how much contagion there is at a given point in time. Um, so having so that what that means is that it probably makes no sense to have a blanket statement or policy even for a country and to say, okay, Brazil should open all the schools because the reality in Rosinha is very different from the reality in Santa Catarina in terms of density, in terms of health conditions, in terms of how many people are infected. And you probably shouldn't open the schools in Rosinha. Rosinha is one of the low income favelas in Brazil, whereas in some places in Santa Catarina, maybe you can open the schools, right? If the weather is nice, you can basically do the classes outside. You can put some big tents. Just make sure you have good airflow. It should be okay. So I I think if I, if I were to say, okay, what's a general statement with respect to school closures, that you need to have localized responses that are made by the people closest to the problem and to the community in close coordination between education and public health authorities, that you you should not try to have even a state policy because conditions within a state may vary quite a bit. But I'm, I'm afraid you're right, John. Uh, Latin America is certainly not in the beginning. I mean, it's not in the end of this crisis may not even be in the middle of this crisis for some of the countries. And so the question really should be, how do we continue educating children while this goes on? How do we make sure that whatever arrangements uh, we have to put in place, and it may not be in-person instruction for some children, that they are as effective as they possibly can be? Having said that, of course, I think every effort should be made to, to open the schools. And one implication of that is classify the teachers as essential workers and get them vaccinated, something that some states in this country didn't do until the very end. In this country, I mean the United States. Classify your teachers as, as essential workers. Make sure they get a vaccine so they are not fearing for their lives if they come to school. They are at greater risk than the kids. We know that because they are older and they have different health conditions than the children. And then let the teachers and the principals make the decisions that are most appropriate given the local circumstances in coordination with the public health authorities. And then, of course, hold people accountable. Tell them this is not one big vacation. Every day that goes, I mean, as as we see the evidence, as we realize that one year without schooling could mean that a child is back two grade levels or three grade levels, and that we may lose 20% of the kids who never come back. This is huge. The educational impact is huge for kids and for countries, right? So, so, so 
it's a tough, it's a very tough situation. I mean, there is no other way to put it. This is a calamity, no matter how many innovation dividends I try to look for in this crisis. Thank you very much on that sad note. Um, we have been listening to Fernando Ramers, Ford Foundation Professor of the Practice in International Education. He's also Director of the Global Education Initiative and the education, International Education Policy Program at Harvard University. Thank you for being with us, Fernando. It was a pleasure, June. Thank you. <laughs>